Our text for today comes from Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are an elementary student, join me upstairs. All right. All right, all right. Um, Just to follow up off of what Ashley said, uh, this is our book of the month. It's called uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by uh, John Mark Comer. Uh, It's a tremendous book. So one of the phenomena that's occurring in our world right now is that everything's turning back on and people are getting busier and busier and busier. And I have this fundamental belief that the busyness of modern American culture is one of the most destructive things to to the soul that has ever existed in human then it's, it's horrible, to be quite honest with you. And that's not to say that we all need to withdraw into the woods and wear bonnets. It's just to say, as a means of uh, solving that problem, it's just to say that some of us uh, need to learn to restructure our lives in such a way as to be able to carve out space to hear God speak to us. And uh, Comer in this book does a tremendous job of laying out both uh, why we should do that in more eloquent way than I just stated, but also how we go about the process of not being driven by the kind of consumer culture uh, rat race that we all are a part of in uh, um, our current state of affairs. So if you have ever uh, got home on a Wednesday or Thursday night and said to your spouse, I just can't believe how busy we are, This book's for you, all right? All right. Today is Memorial Day, right? Today's Memorial Day. And uh, as we remember those who were lost, uh, the soldiers that we've lost, and as we remember a number of the conflicts that have occurred uh, in our country, both uh, today and tomorrow, uh, I would encourage you to be a person of prayer around the Memorial Day. You know, it's important that we remember and we pray and and we memorialize. But as Christians, we also have like one more step that we're called to carry out. And that is to pray that God would come, that Jesus would come, that the Prince of Peace would come. You know, as Christians, we acknowledge the fact that uh, the fact that we have that we fight wars is not an ideal state of being in our world. Correct. And so the Christian move is to uh, both remember and memorialize, but to pray for peace and the, the, and the ultimate peace that comes when Jesus returns. And so whenever we talk about uh, days like today, whether it's Memorial Day or Veterans Day or the 4th of July, I always want to pray uh, first and foremost that uh, the rule and reign of God <laughs> would show up in our world, right? That, I think, is our primary call as Christians. And so I would encourage you to that end this weekend, all right? All right, good, excellent. I want to start with two stories this morning as we begin a new sermon series. A couple years ago, I was at uh, a friend's wedding. He was getting married in western Colorado, and so my whole family drove out. I was a groomsman in this wedding, and I'd never been to western Colorado. I'd actually never been to that part uh, of the country. I've seen, I had seen the mountains in big mountain version of Colorado, but I'd never been to the western part. 
And close to this part of Western Colorado was Moab, Utah. Has anybody ever been to Moab, Utah? You can raise a hand. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And in Moab, Utah, they have a number of national parks. And in one of those uh, parks is the Delicate Arch. Has anybody ever seen the Delicate Arch? Nobody, just me. Well, this will be a good story then. So there is a hike that you can take up to what is probably one of the most beautiful things in all of the national park systems in America. And so my, my brothers and I, and I think my mom and my dad, they made it uh, by the grace of God. We hiked for about an hour up uh, a, a, a fair number of steep inclines, and we got to the delicate arch. It's, it's just this beautiful, beautiful natural phenomena. And as we were up there, the sun was setting, and there were, there were I don't know if there were 100 people, but there were close to 100 people from all over the world, different languages, uh, different skin colors, uh, all peop- a group of people from all over the world just sitting on the edge, the rim of this bowl, staring at this delicate arch at sunset. It was one of the more beautiful things I had ever seen. And it was, a, it was, a, it was an incredibly impactful uh, experience for me to hear all of these different languages and all of these different people gathered around this one natural phenomena and looking at it and drinking it in. It was powerful. So that's the first story. The second story happened last year uh, during when COVID was really at its height. I turned on the TV and I saw that Notre Dame was burning. Does anybody remember Notre Dame being on fire last year? Uh, And I was shocked with seeing Notre Dame burn. There was something about that that stirred something in people. Everyone, it seemed like everybody I ran into, even people who hadn't actually seen it in person, were very, very sad or disturbed by the fact that this great historic cathedral was on fire and that the beauty that is exemplified in that place was lost. The the people who were not religious in any way, shape, or form, right? The people who didn't follow Jesus were, were devastated by the fact that this beautiful structure had been uh, severely damaged. And thank God, I think they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna build it back. But there was something about seeing a, what, is, what is actually a, a building, a cathedral, but is actually a human piece of art, right, dedicated to God, burn, that, that created in people a desire or a, or a longing to see that beauty restored. Now, here's the question. What would bring all of these different people together, both at the Delicate Arch and as we saw Notre Dame uh, on fire last year, from all different parts of the world, different people who've spoke different languages, who have had different religions? What is the unifying factor in both of those stories that brings them together? It's beauty. Beauty. The Delicate Arch is beautiful, right? And people want to see it. Notre Dame is one of the most beautiful buildings on earth, right? Probably next to a number of different chapels like the former churches or what is now a former church like the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople or or the Sistine Chapel in Rome. It's one of the most beautiful and recognizable buildings on earth. And, And because of its beauty, people recognize its value, even people who have no faith. When it burns, it's considered a tragedy because of its beauty. And the beauty of these two things, along with the beauty of so many other things in our world, like art, uh, nature, writing, these things, these examples of beauty, these transcendent experiences of beauty, have the power to bring people together, don't they? 
people who think far different from one another, people who have experienced the world in ways that I haven't experienced it, people who speak different languages and have different understandings of the world. There's something unifying about this experience of beauty that ties people together, that can kind of put everyone on equal footing. We may not agree on much, right? We may not share the same political opinions, we might not speak the same language, and we might not even worship under the same name. But there is something about beauty, isn't there? When we are all together at the delicate arch at sunset, we can agree on something, right? And that's a good thing. This is uh, why people say that beauty in and of itself has a kind of value to it has a value to it, doesn't it? Now, the Greek philosophers, we're going to do a little Greek lesson, a little philosophy lesson right here. The Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle and a couple of other people believed in the supremacy of beauty, truth, and goodness. This is some of the stuff that they talk about. In philosophy, this is referred to as the transcendentals, beauty, truth, and goodness, or you'll see them switched around in, another in other ways, like truth, beauty, and goodness, or truth, goodness, and beauty, whatever it is. The philosopher said that, that the beautiful and the true and the good are things that are not meant, uh, that are things that are meant to be desired or sought after simply for themselves, for their own sake. And that if we seek the beautiful, the true, and the good, these three uh, properties of being, these three transcendentals, we will, uh, uh, we will, by seeking them, we can live a valuable life, is what the philosopher said. And uh, if you want, and the truth of the matter is, we all want to know we're living a significant life. And this was kind of the answer that the early Greek philosophers had to the question of how do we know if we're, if we're living a significant life. And they said, well, you seek these transcendental values of beauty, truth, and goodness, and that's how you know. A life filled with beauty, truth, and goodness should then, according to the philosophers, be the supreme aspiration of the human life. That's what we should chase, in effect. Now, later, uh, a, a, num a couple of centuries later, in the, through the third and fourth centuries uh, CE, Christianity began to spread like wildfire all throughout the Roman Empire. And some of the early church fathers, the great pastors, the great theologians of this burgeoning religion, came along and they affirmed these transcendental values. They, they, they said yes to beauty and yes to truth and yes to goodness. And they said these, these values ought to be the supreme aspiration of human life. The early church fathers and theologians said this. They actually took these three Greek philosophical categories and they affirmed them. Uh, and, but they did one thing. They made one very important tweak to their affirmation of these transcendental values of beauty, truth, and goodness. They said, yes, seeking beauty, truth, and goodness should be the supreme aspiration of the human life but not because beauty, truth, and goodness are valuable all on their own. They would say no to that. They said that beauty, truth, and goodness are valuable pursuits because, because these are all intrinsic attributes of God. God is the one from whom all beauty, truth, and goodness flow, they said. And so if you seek the reality of beauty, truth, and goodness, 
You may not even know it at the time, but what you are really seeking, and indeed what your heart truly longs for, is the creator God that lies behind these transcendentals. Now, the church fathers said one more thing about this, about beauty, truth, and goodness, that we can't skip over, and it's really the point of this whole sermon series over the next three weeks. They said that the creator God has actually revealed beauty, truth, and goodness most fully to us. But he did not do it just through nature. And he didn't do it just through the uh, artistic expression of human beings trying to express beauty. Though it can be found there, for sure. Beauty, truth, and goodness are revealed most fully, the early church father said, in Jesus Christ. In the life, death, and resurrection of a Galilean Jew named Jesus, in him the fullness of beauty, truth, and goodness rest. Paul says something like this in Colossians 2.9 when he says, It is in Christ that all the fullness of deity, of God, rests in bodily form. Now, back to the delicate arch in Notre Notre Dame for a second. Uh, If the early church fathers and the Apostle Paul are correct, if they're correct about this idea, when all of these different types of people are sitting together in Utah or different people are looking up at at Notre Dame, anytime someone is enjoying a great piece of music or is moved by a piece of art, anywhere people are seeking beauty, what they are really seeking after, even if they don't know it, is some aspect or some attribute of God's beauty. What they are longing for, and what they might be even ignorant of the fact that they are longing for, is some aspect of God's character to make its way into their heart and soul. They are looking for the reality of the world in some sense. And when they see beauty, the reason it resonates with them is because there is something inherent to who God is that is being communicated to them. You see, beauty is important, and it must be cultivated in our lives because of the fact that it is a way that we encounter God. God is the creator of all. God created ex nihilo, out of nothing. Then God's, the beauty that we see has to be a natural consequence of God's action in the world. It has to be a reflection, even though in some sense it is a pale reflection of the true beauty that resides in the person of God or in the Trinity. Now, here's the thing. We don't agree in our culture on truth, do we? (laughs) Right? Do you you have any disagreements with people about what truth is? Um, It might even be as simple as like, I don't like that potato salad, right? And and the person's like, I love this potato salad. And where's the truth, you know? Who knows? We don't, we don't always agree on what is good, right? We don't, there's, not, there's not uniform agreement on what is good, good for people or good for society, right? The true sense of goodness. But I think that there is a space where, uh, that beauty can fill in our culture and in our lives that can create some common ground upon which we can agree and we can move a little bit closer towards the creator. 
In a world that can no longer agree on what is true, maybe the best place to begin speaking about God is in, a sh- is in the shared experience of the beautiful. Ma- it might be the best place to begin talking about God. People who worship the one true God, revealed most fully in Jesus, must be people who cultivate beauty through art and through imagery and through language and the, and the appreciation of nature as a means of witnessing to the beauty of a God who created beauty in the first place. Sometimes uh, this beauty will be overtly Christian, right? Sometimes it'll be overtly Christian. Like uh, you've all seen uh, pictures at least of beautiful frescoes, right? Uh, that are depicting experiences from the, the life of Jesus or experiencing some occurrence like, like last week, like Pentecost Sunday, and they will be overtly Christian. Sometimes the songs you hear will be overtly Christian, like what we sing on Sunday mornings, and sometimes they might be more subtle, right? But in the process, I think we can discover a place of agreement that can help to show or to reveal the reality of who God is. When I think about the way that art can be used as a as a means of uh, as a means of exploring or or revealing who God is, I think of some of the great novelists of uh, of the last se- number of centuries. People like Flannery O'Connor, people like Fedor Dostoevsky, people the modern writer like Marilyn Robinson. Uh, these these authors have created beautiful stories that are not overtly 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 Christian. But they, but they have in their stories made an intentional attempt to point to Jesus or to communicate the gospel in some way. Books like The Idiot or The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky are some of the most important theological writing that has been done in the last number, a uh, couple of hundred years, really. And Marilyn Robinson in her book Gilead, you could go pick it up. It's about a pastor and it's set in Iowa. So if you want to go read it, go read it. Or, uh, or th- another thing that's been really important for me is Flannery O'Connor's short stories. Uh, but there is a way that art can become a, a kind of apologetic or an argument for the reality of who Jesus is without the need for overt confrontation. It's like the artist is kind of creating a seat for a, a visitor, right, to come sit down on and experience this beauty with them, Right? Not to be like bludgeoned over the head with an idea that I think you should have, right? Or some, something I think you should do. But rather, I create a space for you to sit with me and enjoy something for a moment. And see, just for a second, just see if maybe that beautiful thing that I experience is beauty and a reflection of God, you will experience as the same thing. By, by cultivating a shared sense of the beautiful with people who don't know Jesus, what we are inviting them to observe is something real about God. It's powerful, isn't it? And before someone can believe something real, they have to observe and experience it. I don't know if you know this, but I think sometimes we think that we can just logic people into faith, right? That that we can just argue people into belief. That's not how it works. I don't know about you, but if somebody just came up to me and said, I know this woman, her name's Ashley, she's really great, you love her now, right? And I'd never met her, I'd be like, I don't think I can do that. 
You're just telling me of a woman's name and some attributes that she has, but I haven't experienced this person. I've never sat next to her, right? Never even, you know, I've never seen her. How, how can I know this, right? Until we have an experience of something, we can't believe that thing. And art and beauty are a means by which we can create space for people to experience the goodness and the love and the reality of who God is. If God is the one from whom all beauty flows. Does this make sense? Now, that's what I think art does for those who don't believe or people who might have some questions about belief. But if we do have faith, right, what is the role of the beautiful, that transcendental value in our lives? I would argue the beautiful in art, what it does inherently is intensifies reality and draws us deeper into the mystery of God's glory. Rich, you can come get ready. That'd be awesome. It, it, it intensifies reality and draws us deeper into the mystery of God's glory. Have you ever seen a painting that just spoke to you and what you what you saw was not some fake or uh, imaginary thing, but you said that doesn't look like reality, but that looks real to me. Something about that experience is real. Have you ever, ever heard a piece of music and it made you re- made you realize how much you loved the person that you loved? It's not that your love was dormant or th- it's, it's that it intensified, right? Your love for that person in a way that made it powerful. And when we engage in art, we are not just always, um, we're not stirring up our emotions for the, f- for the sake of stirring up our emotions. At, at, at its best, what art is, is an intensification, uh, a helpful reminder of just how beautiful that uh, something can be. And in the religious sphere, when we, when we participate in beauty, when we take in art, when we listen to music, what it does, hopefully, when it touches our hearts, is that it points us in the direction of God and tells us what is real again. It tells us what is real again. And so today, I've, I, have a, I have an affinity for the banjo. There's only one banjo player in this church, and I'm trying to get at least 14 or 15, right? If we had a dueling, if we had 14 or 15 banjo players, I think that's the number we're driving at. And so I asked Rich today to just play his banjo a little bit just to see a little bit of what art can do to our hearts, all right? All right, I'm going to sit down and enjoy this with you guys. Thank you. 
as a non-musical person, I'll never know how that happens. It is a little miracle to me for some reason. It really is. Beauty and art pull us into something bigger than ourselves. They do that. They become a vehicle for us to experience reality in a new or different way, but not, uh, not to distract us from reality, but rather to draw us in. Beauty is not just a kind of nice thing that we experience from time to time. I would argue that it's a necessity for us in our lives. And this is why I think the Apostle Paul says what he says in our teaching text for today, where he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things, meditate on them, seek them, right? Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates this passage where he says this. He says, I'd say you'll do your best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, and gracious. The best, not the worst. The beautiful, not the ugly. Things to praise, not things to curse. Put into practice what you learned from me, what you heard and saw and realized. Do that, and God, who makes everything work together, will work you into his most excellent harmony. Very often, we go through life with our head in the sand, don't we? Oblivious to the goodness that is all around us, to the beauty that's all around us. When I'm in a bad mood, nothing is beautiful, right? Nothing is good. Nothing is praiseworthy, right? I can't connect to anything transcendent or beyond myself. But rather, Paul calls us to cultivate a posture that is able to appreciate the good and the beautiful and the true in the world, not just because it's a helpful thing to do, but because it's part of the essence of what it means to be a, a person created in the image of God. Paul wants the Philippians to meditate, to focus on what is ever good and true and beautiful, because these things are not just a means to an end. They are a path that leads us to Jesus. They are. Sometimes we need someone or something to help us and beauty is that thing that we are experiencing uh, that helps us and points us in the direction of our creator God. Beauty can do that. It should do that for us. And there's something else that beauty does. Beauty, when it's at its best, points us to Christ. You know, one of the things that I think we as Christians embrace but don't always live out or understand is that the cross in the cross of Christ we are called we are called to find the definition and truest picture of the beauty of God the beauty of God is most evident in the cross and resurrection of Jesus and that sounds strange doesn't it it's strange that the, the most beautiful thing in all of the world is depicted in this horrible act, right? In this, in this debasement that we experience in the cross of Christ. Now, Christians understand this from the very beginning, because from the very beginning, what do you start getting? You start, you start seeing artistic depictions of the, of the crucifixion. 
And have you ever wondered why so many of those artistic depictions of the crucifixion don't try to shoot for uh, photorealism, right? They don't try to depict, now, um, <laughs> the passion of the Christ did. It was shooting for photorealism, right? It was trying to get as visceral as possible. But so many of the depictions of the cross that we see are not depictions that look like it actually looked. Now, why is that? Why is that? It's because this art is trying to move past the, the, the surface level reality, right? The, the surface level reality was that a man was, was crucified by the Romans. You know, the Romans didn't come up with crucifixion because they thought, huh, this is a beautiful thing to do, right? Everyone will love this. It'll look wonderful, right? That's not why they did it. But yet, when, when, when great art, in the hands of great artists, what, what you see happen is the, not just the brute force reality of what occurred on the cross, but the truth that lies behind it, the sacrifice and the love that lies behind the cross. And so those, those paintings, those pictures are depicted as beautiful for that very reason. And Christians are called to be a group of people who don't just see the beauty of the cross of Christ, but live and embody that beauty themselves. You, so you see, a cruciform people in the world is one of the most beautiful things you can see. A church who lives out the values and the, the cruciform nature of God's love, split and broken open and given for the world, that is a beautiful thing. This is the way one pastor puts it. He says this, it's time to recover the form and beauty of Christianity. Our enduring, our, our I, enduring icon of beauty and the standard by which we gauge the beauty of our actions is the cruciform. The cross is a beautiful mystery, a mystery where an unexpected beauty is in the process of rescuing the world from its ugliness. Beauty will save the world. This is the surprising beauty of the cross when seen through the prism of the resurrection. The cross made beautiful is the ultimate triumph of God and his grace. If the crucifixion of Jesus can be made beautiful, then there is hope that all of the ugliness of the human condition can be redeemed by its beauty. You see, the cross is beautiful because of what it accomplishes and what it reveals. And it's no surprise then to me that as Jesus was about to go to the cross, he gave his followers a practice we call communion as a means of remembering the beauty of the sacrifice that he was about to accomplish. It's no surprise to me that, uh, that Jesus gave us a picture of his body and his blood broken and bruised and shed for us as a means of reminding us weekly, hopefully, of the beauty of what he did. You see, in a way, you could think of communion as a little art piece, right? You could think of it as uh, a little play that we all do together as a means of remembering the central, most beautiful act that any human has ever carried out. Well, God human, you know what I mean, uh, has ever carried out on behalf of other people. Communion then becomes a picture for us of the beauty of the cross and the, and the victory that Christ won on the cross on our behalf. And so today, 
on the last week of the month, on Memorial Day weekend, I thought, what better thing to do than to receive communion together? So this will be, and I'm happy to announce officially, this will be the last time we drink the stale grape juice out of the <laughs> out of the little cups that are hard to open. All right. Next week, or uh, yeah, next time we receive communion together, uh, we'll be coming up front together. Right. Well, we're gonna do the thing. Okay. But to the, but this week, as a, as we conclude, and, and band, if you guys could come up, that'd be great. Um, as we conclude and we receive communion together, let's remember together the beauty of the cross. The beauty of the cross, the, this, this picture of the cross that Jesus gives us in this practice of communion as a means of remembering and commemorating what he did for us. Now, Paul, writing to the church in uh, 1 Corinthians, says to them, For I received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, This is my body which is for you. Let's uh, receive the bread together, shall we? And after supper, he took the cup. And he said of the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. And Paul continues on and says, uh, whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, special music for y'all, all right? So as we go, uh, don't run off too fast. I think they call this a nanny. I think is what we, I think it's his technical term. All 
All right, all right. So go today in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, but stick around for two seconds, all right? All right, we'll see you next week. A lot of you probably know this song, so sing along. I wandered so aimless, a life filled with sin. I couldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. Oh, I saw the light, I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow inside. Just like a blind man, I wandered along. Worries and fears I claim for my own. Then like the blind man, let God get back inside. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. Oh, I saw the light, I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow inside. fool to wander and stray. Straight is the gate and narrow the way. Now I have traded the wrong for the right. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. Oh, I saw the light. I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow inside. Praise the Lord, I saw Oh, I saw the light, I saw the light, no more darkness, no more night, now I'm so happy, no sorrow inside.